Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. As you know, we're in a new series in the book of Daniel. Today is chapter 2, and we'll put that uh, title on the... There we go. One of the leaders of the AA movement a few years ago wrote a book entitled, Not God. And in it, he says, uh, the fundamental problem that alcoholics have is that down deep, they refuse to acknowledge their limitations, uh, their weakness, they're being finite, they're being fallen. They, they, they live under this delusion that they're in control of, every, of everything, when in truth is, they can't even control themselves. Uh, and on the overhead here, this is what he writes. He says, the fundamental, he says, fundamental to the recovery process is that healing and sanity begin with the realization that I'm not God. Simple as that sounds. I'm not God. I'm not in control of my universe. I can't even control myself. I violate my own values. I want to do one thing, but then I do something else. I have weakness and limitations. I need help from a power greater than myself. I'm not God. Now, of course, this I'm not God delusion is not limited just to alcoholics. Uh, uh, you know what was behind the very first sin committed? The serpent said to the woman in the garden, Genesis 3, 5, for God knows when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. No, next overhead, please. Uh, and you like God, no one good and evil. This was the first temptation to give, uh, to give into the delusion, to the lie that you'll become like God. Uh, that, that you're like him, that you're God. You'll be the master of your own universe. You don't have to bend the knee to God. You don't have to submit to, to, to the Lord's wisdom. You can get away with flouting the, the moral laws of the universe. You'll be like God. And people have been falling for that one for a long time. You'll be like God, the serpent said. This is the heart of sin and, and rebellion and pride and spiritual confusion. Now at these recovery meetings at AA and, and so on, uh, they always start with this reminder of, of spiritual sanity. Uh, the first thing people say when they, when they, they talk in, in one of those meetings is, hello, my name is John or whatever your name is. I'm an alcoholic and I'm not God. You know, the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. <laughs> Failure to understand that you're not God will destroy your spiritual life. So today we're going to study a man uh, who is beginning to learn this very painful lesson that he's not God. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Daniel 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, uh, and his mind was troubled, and he couldn't sleep. Nebuchadnezzar, he's the unchallenged authority uh, at this point uh, over the whole known world. Uh, he has youth, strength. Wealth, fame, power, unparalleled in the world. Uh, he's the most secure person on the face of the earth. Uh, he's like a god. Uh, that's how people think of him. That's how he views himself. But now he's a god who can't sleep. Uh, he's a god with troubled dreams. Uh, people who live under the I'm God delusion are always just one bad dream, uh, one bad night's sleep, away from utter insecurity because they're building on a house of sand. 
So in the second year of his reign, he's troubled. Uh, he calls his, uh, his advisors together. Uh, he tells them his troubles about the dream. They look at Daniel 2.14. I'm sorry, Daniel 2.4. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. And let me ask you, how well do you think his advisors did in, rem in reminding him that he's not God? <laughs> not so good, huh? Be eternal, O king. Live forever. May you never die. Nebuchadnezzar saw the world as revolving around him. He's in control. He's in charge. People exist to make him happy. The world revolves around him. Uh, it's there to fulfill his joy and pleasure. A lot of people live under this delusion. Uh, we call it Messiah complex or grandiosity disorder or being a megachurch pastor. <laughs> At any rate... Nebuchadnezzar sees the world is revolving around him. Uh, he tells his wise men and his magicians to tell him not only the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself. Because apparently he can't remember it. Uh, now, he probably has some vague, shattery recollections of it, but not the details. And his advisors, they're in a panic. They can't tell him his dream. Uh, no one can do that. And he has a rather strong response. And now we see another aspect of, of Nebuchadnezzar's character, the, uh, of the, this I'm God syndrome, that the world revolves around me. You know, uh, he's marked by low frustration tolerance. Uh, uh, I can't stand it. If I don't get my way, then I'll get it right now. It's basically his attitude. The astrologers, they say what the king asks to tell him the dream itself, it's impossible. Daniel 2, verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. In fact, not only does he have no frustration tolerance, he's also paranoid. Look at Daniel 2, beginning in verse 8. The king answered, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you don't tell me my dream, there's just one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So he comes up with a conspiracy theory. Uh, he's paranoid now. He's acting like a typical, immature U.S. politician. <laughs> you see, power has a way of confusing people about who's really at the center of the universe. It reminds me of a story long ago about LBJ when he was president. Uh, he was at a cabinet meeting, and he asked his press secretary, Bill Moyers, uh, who was, by the way, an ordained Southern Baptist minister, uh, to pray. So Bill Moyers, he's praying quietly at the other end of the table, and LBJ says, speak up, Moyers, I can't hear you. And Bill Moyers says, I wasn't speaking to you, sir. <laughs> I'm not God. Listen, patience, long-suffering, humility, self-control, uh, being slow to anger, quick to forgive, assuming the best of your brother and sister, uh, peaceful dealing with frustration, these are crucial to the formation of your character. That's a little reminder that you're not at the center of the world. So next time you're frustrated, uh, you're caught in, in, in traffic, uh, your kids act out, uh, a task takes longer than you planned, uh, you don't get your way. Instead of losing your temper and getting bent out of shape, instead of giving in to, to road rage or, or spill rage or, or task rage or I didn't get my way rage, Remind yourself, I'm not God. The world doesn't revolve around me. 
here's my chance to practice patience and self-control and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and humility. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's a god. He thinks the world revolves around him. He thinks it's all about me. Uh, and he's constantly racked with anxiety. He's troubled uh, and frustration when things don't go his way. Uh, and so uh, he also has all these fears of inadequacy. You know, how am I going to face the future? Now, the astrologers, they have another worldview. Uh, when the king makes this impossible command, look at Daniel 2, verse 10. The astrologers answer the king, there's not a person on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live on earth. No one can reveal it. No one can know except the gods, and they don't live among men. You see, this is the great issue. Does God live on earth? Does the Lord ever manifest himself in this world and visit and dwell with man? Does he provide a way to relate to him? Does he know me? Does he care about me? Or am I left on my own to struggle as best I can? Here's the way his advisors see the world. Uh, Here's me. I live on earth. uh, And there's God up there in the heavens. But when I try to connect with him and contact him, There's this great divide. There's this barrier between me and God. And so I'm on my own. And when I have problems, I have no place to go but right here. No one can solve this problem except the gods, and they don't live on the earth. And if we're honest, we all live with this attitude sometimes. You know, we we say we believe. You know, we say we're not on our own. But we, we live like we are many times. Uh, We're confessing theists, but often practical atheists. A problem enters your life, and instead of going to God, you just worry uh, or complain. Uh, You have a burden, and instead of placing it at Yeshua's feet at the foot of the cross, you try to carry it yourself. Uh, You have an agenda, and instead of surrendering it to the Lord, uh, you want him to do your bidding. You say, my will be done. And you end up like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, functionally being your own God. And you become self-focused and self-preoccupied. You're in a constant state of anxiety and worry because you've kind of solved everything on your own. And a constant feeling of inadequacy because you know you can't handle it. Uh, And fear. These advisors have no hope. They're in fear. They're going to die. And then there's Daniel. Daniel and his three friends, uh, they go to God and they pray. And the Lord gives them both the dream and the interpretation. And then Daniel sings his amazing hymn of praise to God. Look at Daniel 2, verse 20. Praise the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Uh, He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. And look at verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, Don't execute the wise men of Babylon. Uh, Take me to the king, and I'll interpret the dream to him. Daniel, he seeks Arioch out. Uh, Daniel takes the initiative. But then look at the next verse, uh, Daniel 2.25. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I've found a man among the exiles from Judah 
who can tell the king what his dreams mean. Now, Ariok is engaged here in what we call spin control. <laughs> uh, the truth is Daniel sought him out. Ariok, he was going to kill them all. But because he wants to impress Nebuchadnezzar, Ariok says, I found the man. Look, look what I've accomplished for you, O great king. Now, con contrast that with Daniel's humility. Look at Daniel 2.26. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And then verse 27, Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king uh, the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven. He reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Daniel refuses to take credit for this. He gives all the glory to God. Uh, and after describing the dream, Daniel says in Daniel 2, verse uh, 36, this was the dream, and now we'll interpret it to the king. Now, why does he say we will interpret it? Uh, two reasons. One, he wants to include his three friends, give them credit as well. Uh, he doesn't want to hug all the credit for, for himself and hog it all. Second, he wants to give the ultimate credit, of course, to, to the Lord, uh, who's, re who's the revealer and the interpreter of dreams. In fact, at the very end of the story, if you turn to Daniel 2.49, it says, Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the whole province of Babylon. Daniel wants his friends in on the credit and in on the promotion. I love that, that selfless heart about Daniel. Uh, to think of others. I want a heart like that. Because I'm not God. And I don't have to strive to take all the credit. Uh, I don't have to obsess over, over image management or, or self-promotion. Daniel doesn't try to promote himself. God sees, God knows, and Daniel's careful to give credit to God and his three friends. There's just this selflessness about him. Daniel then describes the dream, Daniel 2, verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, uh, an enormous, dazzling statue, an, uh, awesome in appearance. It had a head of gold, chest and, and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron mixed with clay. It's this image of awesome power. Uh, and best of all for Nebuchadnezzar is his own part in the statues. Look at verse uh, 37. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Uh, in your hands he's placed all the peoples and the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Notice how Daniel emphasizes the extent of, of Nebuchadnezzar's power. He's not just ruler over human beings. He's also over the beasts of the, of the field and then the birds of the air. Uh, Daniel 2, verse 39, Daniel says, After you will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then, and then uh, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. The second kingdom with his breast of, and arms of silver, all commentators agree, is, is Media Persia. Uh, the two arms symbolize the combined kingdoms of, of the Medes and the Persians. The third kingdom with the belly and thighs of bronze is, is Greece. And the fourth kingdom, the legs of iron, the fourth kingdom is Rome, with the two legs symbolizing the split between the eastern and the western empires of Rome. And most commentators see the ten toes uh, of clay and iron as some sort of revived Roman Empire of, of the last days, uh, led by ten rulers. Indeed, Daniel 7, if you skip over to Daniel 7, he describes a fourth beast, also with ten horns, 
horn symbolizing power or, or, or rulership. And the book of Revelation uses the same symbol of 10 horns to describe this 10 nation confederacy. So look at Revelation 17, verse 12. The 10 horns you see are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast, the, the false messiah. This is the tribulation empire of the anti-messiah. The beast will seek, to, will seek to destroy the testimony of God uh, and God's people on the earth. He'll attempt to destroy all those who believe in Yeshua and will also turn his wrath against Israel and, and seek to destroy the Jewish people. But the Lord will not let this happen. The false messiah will not succeed. Note that his kingdom is described as having feet of clay, iron mixed with clay, uh, mingled with the seed of man. All of the false messiah's power and splendor stands on merely human foundations, not on the rock, but on shifting sand. Uh, it's vulnerable. And one day it'll be totally blown away. We have feet of clay, like the image in Daniel. Uh, and clay, Daniel says, represents the seed of man. We come from the dust of the earth. And wherever anything is built on men, it's built for ultimate dissolution. Uh, Professor Alexander Tyler wrote this about the time of the founding of the American Republic, uh, about government built on men. Uh, look at the overhead here. He writes this. Uh, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority will always vote for the candidates promising them the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the following sequence. Look at the sequence that he, he, he notes through his, his study of history. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From, from abundance to selfishness. From selfishness to complacency. From complacency to apathy. From apathy to dependency. And from dependency back to bondage. Wow, does that describe our own nation's current path or what? You know, in America, we've gone from worshiping God as our ethos in, in the 18th century uh, to uh, worshiping the nation uh, in the 19th century to worshiping the self uh, in the 20th century. And now in the 21st century, we're on the edge of moral and spiritual collapse. And if you look at the world today, we see the world as this vast stage, uh, a vast stage with the final curtain still down, but with the actors even now gathering behind the curtain, if you will, preparing for the last act in the drama of human history, which will usher in the last days and the return of Messiah. And if we listen closely, we can almost hear the commotion of the stagehands uh, as they set out the machinery and set the stage for the final act. And Daniel in this chapter takes us behind the curtain, if you will, uh, before it rises. Uh, and these four kingdoms depicted in the statue, uh, in, this, in the statue we see the history of the Gentile rulers uh, on the earth. Uh, Yeshua, in fact, Yeshua predicted what he called the time of the Gentiles. Look at Luke 21, verse 24. Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles, 
until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And even though Babylon has fallen long ago, it was not the end of the Babylonian influence because it was Babylon that is a system of, the system of man-made religion and false religion first began in Babylon. The first false system of religion recorded in the Bible was at the Tower of Babel. And from then on, Babylon becomes synonymous with false religions. So indeed, we read this in Revelation 17, verse 5. The false religious system is described as, quote, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations on the earth. Now, in Daniel's writing this, Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple's destroyed. The children of Israel stand at the banks of the rivers of Babylon and hang their harps on the willows because they have no song to sing. And the question is, has God forgotten his people? And this prophecy here in Daniel 2 is a resounding no. Because we read this. Look at Daniel 2, verse 34. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue and the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken into pieces all at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in summer. You know, when a farmer, he, he threshes wheat, the chaff is the lightweight uh, junk that falls out and gets scattered to the winds. That's the picture here. Daniel 2, verse 35. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Then Daniel 2, 44. Daniel gives the interpretation. In the time of these kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. Uh, it will crush all these kingdoms and put them to an end but it will itself endure forever. And of this kingdom, there'll be no end. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. The rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Daniel here, he's prophesying what would be the, the hinge of human history, uh, the history of the world. Uh, he would not live to see it. Neither would uh, centuries after centuries of people to follow him. Uh, and then one day, an obscure carpenter from an obscure town began an itinerant ministry, saying this in Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you understand how people trembled when they heard these words? This is what they've been waiting for. Uh, Yeshua was the rock cut not by hands, not by human hands, not produced by human beings. That's why Peter calls him the living stone. He, Peter's quoting right from the book of Daniel. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Uh, As you came to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. And both Jewish and Christian commentators all agreed that the rock that smashes the mountain in Daniel chapter 2 is the Messiah. Uh, the Jewish Targums in, in written Aramaic, uh, the Midrashim, a famous medieval commentator, Ibn Ezra, uh, they all say the stone is Messiah. He will topple the earthly empires and establish his kingdom. Just as we read in Isaiah 9, verse 6, unto us a child will be born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. Only he has the right to rule. Proverbs 118, verse 22, 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter actually quotes this verse as applying to Yeshua. And Yeshua himself declares that this verse applies to him. Look at uh, Matthew 21, 42. Yeshua said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Isaiah 28, 16. The Lord says, See, I lay in Zion a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Yeshua is, as Isaiah 8, 14 says, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And in 1 Corinthians 10, we, Paul says, the rock that the children of Israel drank from in the wilderness, that rock was Messiah. Yeshua is the stone in Daniel 2, cut without hands, that smashes all these world empires and grows into a great mountain, a kingdom that will never end. He'll return at the appointed time to smash Gentile domination over Israel. Uh, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, splitting it in two, as Zechariah 14 tells us. And all the ungodly will be judged, and Yeshua will establish his everlasting kingdom from Jerusalem to reign over all the earth. Now, the text says the stone was cut without hands. That's a hint at Yeshua's supernatural nature and his virgin birth. The stone was not a man-made stone. It also is a hint at his resurrection because there was no human agency that, that involved in the resurrection. Uh, God himself raised him up, the power of God. After the stone crushes the statue, crushes the Gentile kingdoms and the final kingdom of the false Messiah, the stone then does what? It grows into this great mountain. Now, by the way, the chief god of Babylon was Bel Merodach, also known as Shadu Rabu, which means great mountain. But the Lord gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream that tells him that his God is not the great mountain. The Messiah of Israel is this great mountain that will fill the earth and establish an everlasting kingdom. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Daniel sees the kingdom of God breaking into human history. Daniel sees the earth and his place in it. In the heavens dwells the infinite God watching over each one of us. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, God never has a sleep problem. He's not troubled by anxious thoughts or by bad dreams. And this infinite God, whose, uh, whose kingdom will one day come to earth, if you are trusting in Yeshua, he, you, he has a direct relationship with you and with me. I'm not God. I'm just one of his many followers. But I don't have to promote myself. I don't have to make sure that, that I get all the credit and the praise of men for everything I do. God knows, God sees, God cares. You and I, we're just one of many. Uh, you're not God, but in Messiah Yeshua, you become God's friend, God's child. And therefore, it doesn't make any difference uh, if you're even a political prisoner like Daniel was or, or a prisoner for your faith because God is watching over you. He knows, he sees, he cares. You're not God, but you are his friend. You're therefore, you're not alone. You're, you're not on your own. Uh, and this is who Daniel is. Uh, so his life is filled with humility instead of self-preoccupation. His life is filled with confidence instead of anxiety uh, and with courage. 
instead of timidity or fear. I'm not God, but in Yeshua, I'm his friend. God's in charge, and I can trust in him. Two other points that flow from this understanding. Number one, Daniel has this deep desire that Nebuchadnezzar begin to understand this spiritual reality, uh, that he comes face to face with this truth. Uh, because when I, like Daniel, understand that, that I'm lost apart from God, uh, then there, when I understand that I will devote myself to serving him and helping other people uh, meet and come to know this one true God, we all, like Nebuchadnezzar, are lost without the Lord. And when you fully grasp this, you will devote yourself to helping others uh, come to know him uh, and to love and serve and worship Yeshua as Lord. The book of Daniel is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Going into exile, which looks like the end of the world, actually results in presenting Daniel with the opportunity of a lifetime to teach the Babylonians about the one true God. And the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized during the lifetime of the opportunity. Daniel did not hold back. He acts boldly. Uh, he redeems the time. Uh, he doesn't waste his one and only life. Even as a political prisoner, he looked for opportunities for God to use him. You may be in a, a lesser type of exile today, uh, a difficult job condition, uh, a difficult family condition, a bad neighborhood, a, a bad school. But Daniel will encourage you, this may be your opportunity designed by God to live out and proclaim the good news of Messiah's kingdom and the soon return of Yeshua. Note that verse 4, uh, it says, the advisors answered the king in Aramaic. From Daniel 2, 4, all the way to Daniel 7, the entire text is written in Aramaic, uh, not Hebrew. It's the only book of the Bible written in Aramaic, the, the Gentile tongue. Why? Uh, two reasons, I'll suggest. First, to signal that with the destruction of the temple and the sacking of Jerusalem, the time of the Gentiles has begun. Gentile domination over Israel. The time when God is now dealing with the nations. The time, and that time is rapidly coming to a close, with Jerusalem now back in Jewish hands. And the nations led by the U.S. starting to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Yes, East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and the West Bank, they're still in Gentile hands. We're still not totally filled with, done with the time of the Gentiles. But Gentile domination over Israel and the time of the Gentiles is rapidly coming to a close. We're getting nearer and nearer to the last days and the return of Messiah. And if you listen closely, you can almost hear his footsteps. That's one reason why I believe the first half of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. The second is because Aramaic was the most common language of the day. It was the, the lingua franca, uh, the, the universal tongue. It's as though Daniel is signaling to his readers that Adonai is not just the God of, of one tribe uh, or one country or one people or one language, but he's the God of the whole earth. You know, we think we're the first generation to have to deal with issues of, of diversity and multiculturalism, but it's all over the book of Daniel. Indeed, throughout uh, chapter 2, the Lord is called the God of heaven. Uh, you know, Daniel wants to make it very clear to Nebuchadnezzar that God is not only Israel's God. Because Nebuchadnezzar is used to each nation having its own gods, Babylon having its gods. But the Lord is not just one God among many. He's the God of the whole earth, the God of heaven. He's the Lord of Babylon as well as the Lord of Israel. Uh, he's the Lord of Nebuchadnezzar. 
as well as the Lord of Daniel. He's the Lord of Jerusalem, as well as Rome, and New York City, and Washington, D.C., and yes, even Dallas. <laughs> you see, Daniel is evangelizing Nebuchadnezzar. He's using great skill, great tact. He gives Nebuchadnezzar the good news first, very wise of Daniel. He says, you're the head of gold. <laughs> That's the good news. But then he gets real frank. The statue has feet of clay, and one day it's coming down. Nebuchadnezzar, there's one true God, the God of heaven. Uh, and he's going to set things right one day, so you better get right with him. Notice the drama here. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, who could, without batting an eyelash, kill Daniel if he's offended. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die, and your kingdom is going to be swept away without a trace. So you better get right with God. What would happen if all of us here at Eskayim were filled with that kind of holy boldness? What if we all proclaimed the gospel with that kind of fierceness uh, and conviction and courage and abandon? We would turn our community upside down. We'd transform our spheres of influence for the glory of God. Sanctifying his name, lifting up Yeshua so that all men might be drawn unto him. So be bold for the Lord. Be a Daniel. Do not fear or be afraid. Be strong and courageous. You know, I know people in full-time ministry who say, you know, I'm so busy with my congregation or with my ministry that, you know, that I don't have time. I don't have any hours left in my whole week for reaching out to or spending time with people who aren't already believers. Well, I would say this to them. Reallocate your hours. Change your schedule. You know, if Nebuchadnezzar was ever going to come to God, which we're going to see in chapter 4, this may have happened, God was going to use this little guy right here, this exiled political prisoner, this Jewish teenager, Daniel. Daniel had a lot of reasons to, to shrink back. He could be killed, but he uses wisdom and unquenchable boldness. Daniel, he proclaims the truth. How will Nebuchadnezzar respond? This is the moment of life or death for Daniel. Look at verse 46, Daniel 2, 46. Then, the king, then king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar begins to open his heart to God. Now, is he really and truly converted and transformed at this point? No, not yet. Now, we're going to see that in spades next week in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, he's still engaged in, in, in pagan idolatry, uh, in oppressive violence, in, in self-worship. But Daniel doesn't give up on him because he knows that the God of heaven is at work, even on Nebuchadnezzar. And if one day we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, it'll be because of Daniel. You know, people's spiritual journeys are not usually as straight up a ladder. I know mine's not. Often, you know, it's two steps forward and one step back. But I know that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, black or white, rich or poor, we're all lost without Yeshua. Uh, and because I know this, I will devote myself to the Great Commission. And I will take risks. I will reallocate my time to introduce people to their Messiah, the Messiah of Israel. 
And if God is God and I'm not, but I'm his friend, I'm adopted into his family, then I can stop worrying. I'm invited to stop worrying. Look at Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Yeshua says in Matthew 6, 33, seek, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about himself, it, itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. So you're encouraged to rest in the Lord and not to worry. Uh, and when worry comes along, allow the Spirit to remind you, you know what? I'm not God. I don't have to carry the world on, on my shoulders uh, because my shoulders aren't big enough. So God, I'm just going to give this to you. Give it over to him. You see, Daniel's convinced, even in this foreign land, even as a political prisoner, even under death threats from a despot, that, this li that his life is in competent hands. He doesn't have to, to live in fear. Daniel, he steps out in faith, and God honors him. Look at verse 48. And the king placed Daniel in high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Now, you would expect that at this point of the story, at the very end, is where Daniel sings this great hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God. When, when all this goes well and Daniel is lavished with all these gifts and praise. But no, the hymn of praise does not come at the end of the story after all goes well. Rather, it came way back in verse 20, in the middle, middle of the story, long before Daniel knew how the king would react. Daniel praises the Lord when he's still under this death threat, and he doesn't yet know how it's going to turn out. At this point, he's not even met yet with, with King Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't know if he and his three friends are going to live or die. And even if he gets to see Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't know yet how the king will react. Nebuchadnezzar could be angry at the interpretation, seeing how the statue is going to be crushed to powder and kill Daniel. So there's lots to legitimately worry about. Nothing has yet changed in his situation except this. Daniel knows that God has spoken. He knows who's in charge, and that's enough. He can trust the Lord. As readers in verse 20, we don't know how the story yet will end. If we stop right there at verse 20, we're asked to praise the Lord with Daniel in the middle of the story when we don't know yet how it'll turn out. And that's a picture of your life. Anyone here today have problems? You're in the middle of your story. We, uh, we must hear it as Chaim. You know, we meet here at as Chaim week after week. We do life together. Uh, as a faith family, uh, as a covenant community. Uh, and, and when we do, every time we gather together, we do again what Daniel did in verse 20. We praise the Lord. Uh, we praise and thank uh, and worship God in the middle of our stories. We don't know yet how it's going to turn out. But we can trust the Lord and give him our worship and our praise. Maybe some exciting and wonderful things are going to happen. Maybe some difficult and, and, and painful things. We don't know yet the end of our story. But we know the writer. We know the author. We know whose hands we're in. And we can trust his care and confidence. And, and we gather together each Shabbat in the midst of our stories. 
and we pour our hearts out in worship and thanksgiving and adoration to this God, who, as Daniel says in Daniel 2, verse 31, he changes, uh, he changes verse 21, he changes times and seasons, he deposes kings and raises up others, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the, to the discerning. So we don't have to worry. Our times are in his hands. So next time you feel anxiety, stop. And with Daniel, remind yourself, I'm not God. I'm just his really good friend. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I'll have the music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Father, today we're reminded that I'm not God, but you are. I'm not in the center of the universe. I'm not even in control of my own life. But you are. You are God. You are sovereign over men and kings and nations and my life. And Lord, I repent today for believing the lie of the serpent, that I can be my own independent Lord and master, that I can be like you. You're Yeshua. You're in complete control. You're the Lord of my life, and now I yield completely my life to you. Help me not to be like Nebuchadnezzar, not to be out of control with fits of rage and anger uh, and violence and pride and arrogance, thinking the world revolves around me. Instead, help me to humble myself and to surrender my rights and to stop reacting in the flesh. Help me to be slow to anger, not to hold resentment, to be quick to forgive, to assume the best, not the worst, but the best of my brother and sister. Help me to have the fruit of the spirit of long-suffering uh, and patience and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. In a word, help me to be more like you, Yeshua. Yeshua, you are the rock. You are the stone of Israel. You are the stone the builders rejected, but has not become the cornerstone. You're the rock cut without hands. You smash all the kings of the, of the earth, and you grow into a great mountain uh, to rule and reign forever from Jerusalem. From Jerusalem. Hallelujah. I'm not God, but in you, Messiah Yeshua, I am your friend. Praise the Lord. So, Lord, give me, give us today the boldness of Daniel to proclaim your gospel of salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile, to the ends of the earth. And in your name we pray. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.